0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: And welcome to a special Thursday night redo of episode 52 of the Metzian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. And why do I say redo? Well, on Sunday night, which is typically our podcast night, we had some technical issues and we had to scrub it. But I'm very happy to say that we will recreate that show now. Um, We have our same guest on the line, whom I will bring in in just a moment. But before I do that, uh, I only have one of my podcasting co-conspirators this evening and that's mr sam maxwell hailing from the uh, the great borough of manhattan sam uh good evening to you and uh and where do we find you do we find you in hell's kitchen actually you know what you find me in flatbush brooklyn
0: tonight so you know i've shifted a little bit uh to the to the uh, southeast if you will uh, i am out in brooklyn uh the the early stages of long island uh, as it used to be specifically um it still technically is from a geographical standpoint uh but you know brooklyn a very independent town uh still could potentially be its own city but uh it it absorbed very reluctantly uh, unlike the rest of them
1: well there you go and, and for those who don't know sam uh spends a lot of his time on the road so that that's why he's probably in brooklyn right now as opposed to is stomping grounds of Manhattan, and Sam, very happy you could join us, and also very happy that we are able to bring back Brian Wright from Metsamorized Online. Uh, Brian was on with us Sunday night when we had our issues, and uh, we were able to work this out to have Brian as our very special guest. So, Brian, um, if you could tell folks where we could find you uh, on Twitter and stuff and, and some of the interesting stuff you're working on for Metsamorized Online. And let me throw this in, too. It's a very interesting time, I would imagine, for people who write the really popular blogs, such as MMO. So, when there's no season, what are you writing about? What's going on?
2: Uh, well, good evening, Rich and Sam. Uh, it's great to be on. Again, it's great to hear you both very clearly, um, and hopefully you guys are hearing me clearly as well. Uh, yeah, so it's very interesting uh, because you're just kind of scraping for content. I think in Metsamorize, I will give them a lot of credit. It seems like every day whether I'm writing uh, whether I'm contributing or not there always seems to be something new that they've thought of whether it's uh, hey who had the best seasons among first basemen or or um, who were the best you know one season wonders in Mets history or uh you know it's so an interesting podcast or in the case of me myself and uh, Tim Ryder uh, we are writing a um, kind of a little retrospective going along with the calendar of the 2000 team. So I just had an article that came out uh, just a few hours ago on the, uh, on the team's fortunes in late April, which included a, a makeup game against the Dodgers uh, led by Davey Johnson, also uh, uh, a series against the Reds, against Ken Griffey Jr. shortly after he rebuffed a potential trade from the Mariners to the Mets and the Mets fans let him have it. They booed him with every at bat when he was, uh, come up to bat for the Reds and then, uh, also a series against the Rockies. So, uh, it's interesting for me cause I was, you know, 13 years old Then looking back at that season, because I was certainly heavily invested. I mean, I'm heavily invested every Mets season, but more so as a 13 year old. So, um, We've done very well uh, as far as getting content. I I came on board with Metzmerize. I did a few guest pieces, but I was starting to come on board as like an, his, an historian before this all went down, and I was interested in writing maybe like oh one story a week or one every two weeks, just to you know kind of uh, continue writing after my latest book came out uh, on top of my you know just regular full time job, and then the coronavirus hits and. I get noticed from the editors, like, hey, we need as much content as we can from you. So it's, just, so it's been a, a – uh, it hasn't been you know a, a constant surge of stuff, but it's, it's more frequently than I thought. But uh, at this time, I think it needs to be all hands on deck to try to provide content to keep these sites going.
1: Absolutely. And, and Brian, you mentioned your book, and I, I'm going to ask you two more things about yourself demographically. Uh, so can you tell folks where you could find you on Twitter in addition to Mets Rise, where oh. where we'd find you on Twitter and a little bit about the title of your book and what it's all about. Yeah.
2: Sorry if I forgot to mention that. My, uh, I'm on Twitter at BrianWright86. Uh, you can find me there and uh, you can also reach out to me if you're interested in a signed copy of my latest book, which is New York Mets All-Time All-Stars, which is a uh, kind of a selection of the uh, 30, a 30-man a thirty roster, uh, the manager, uh, coaches, GM, owner, uh, kind of the best, the best the Mets have had to offer, at least from my perspective. Uh, it's great. It's a great debate starter because I think there are a lot of different ways you can kind of create a team and and uh, you, you, a lot of different methods of criteria for selecting a team. So uh, that came out about late February. So again, if you're interested, uh, send me a direct message at BrianWright86. I'm happy to uh, send a signed copy. And currently uh, to help out uh, uh, the healthcare workers in the New York City area, all, uh, I shouldn't say all, portion of the sales uh, are going uh, to uh, the Hospital for Special Surgery. So, very happy to do that and uh, uh, happy to help a great cause at this very, uh, very needed time.
1: Well, that's an awesome thing to do, Brian. And uh, the book is fantastic, folks. I strongly recommend it. And I we talked about it, and we did debate it, talk about it, whatever you want to call it. About a month and a half ago or so on the podcast, Brian joined us, and we went through position by position. And I've totally forgiven Brian for having Ed Crane pull on the list of first base instead of John Milner. And I say that with a smile, um, we, with one of the things we talked about, and it's all a matter of opinion. Uh, but, Brian, the book is fantastic, good for you, and, and great work giving some of it back to, to the fight against corona and helping out, helping out the healthcare care workers. Um, oh, so well, let's start. Absolutely. Let's start there. Um, let's start with uh, now, Brian, you're, you're down in the DC area. So, um, what's the mood like, you know, not talking sports, but what's the mood like in general? Um, how's the Corona thing? Is the curve flattened and all of that? How how are things looking?
2: I'll be honest. I, I mostly turn a blind eye to the news. I mean, I, I obviously know about, you know, what it things, become, uh, you know, I, I can't avoid it, but mostly I turn a, a blind eye to things both because I have better things to, to watch and read. And I just sometimes just don't want to hear and read, uh, about certain things and certain people, uh, if you catch my drift. Uh, so I, I, so I, I'm not the most informed person, even if I'm in Washington DC and very close to the, the epicenter of, uh, of, uh, the, the, of the, the country. Um, I have noticed and maybe it's just me that it's not and maybe this is because it hasn't been as affected as as New York the New York area. I haven't seen as much of a togetherness of DC and maybe that's just a product of of the city itself, it's a very, you know, of, of I guess, you know, very work-centric city. Um so I haven't noticed the kind of the come together um aspect uh, that I would that I've seen in New York City. Um, I may be biased in that just because I uh, appreciate New York more than even the city I live in as much as I, I really like DC. Um, so I, I, it's, uh, it's, it's weird as, as it has been for everyone in a city, it's weird to, to walk around. I mean, uh, go to just a grocery store and stand in line and have to kind of be uh, uh, have to wait about an hour and, and then, you know, it's a limited grocery store and you're wearing a mask and you got to avoid people and, uh, some people are extremely nice. They're understanding the situation. And it seems interesting. Some people are a little, you know, standoffish, and that's understandable too. So uh, just a weird time, uh, maybe not as strange or, or um, unfortunate as it is in the New York City area. But um, I've been hearing for hearsay that Washington, D.C. could be the next epicenter. I don't know any more about that. Um, <laughs> if that's the case, I'm, I might go flee to uh Either my parents, who are in Virginia, or my girlfriend's parents, who are in Maryland, both. We'll yeah,
1: that that hopefully that doesn't happen. And Sam <laughs> so sad, uh, sounds
0: like uh, uh, sorry, p- pitting the the Mid Atlantic against one another. Sorry, pitting pitting the Mid Atlantic against one another. You you're you're setting Maryland and Virginia on opposite sides of uh, D.C. against one another, right there. Yeah. No. I, well.
2: I should say my 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 family is my parents that are in Northern Virginia, so I, it's kind of interesting if you ever know if you know Virginia It's almost like it's two different states: Northern Virginia and then the rest of Virginia. Because I went to college and at Virginia Tech and grew up in Northern Virginia, it's a totally different feel.
1: That's yeah. The, it changes around the Richmond area, right? Maybe a little bit north north of that, where uh, north of that is yeah. more like the suburb, right? And, Just quick, uh, quick, yeah, like Frederick.
0: quick little tidbit. Quick little anecdote and tidbit. My dad's from Northern Virginia, and I was born in Richmond.
1: There you go. You are a spider, Richmond Spiders, right?
0: (laughs) Yes. The the bridge when I was there.
1: There you go. All right. So, Sam, uh, and again, as I mentioned, Sam spends a lot of his time on the road in in Manhattan, Brooklyn, different boroughs. Um, So, Sam, you are, I mean, you are right there. You're you're working right through this. You're in the epicenter. Um, How's it going for you?
0: Well, speaking of, uh, you know,
1: some people get a little
0: standoff or some people are very cordial. Uh, you know, it, it's just funny when you're going shopping, you know, you've been all waiting outside for, you know, and six feet at a time uh, for when the grocery store uh, says it's appropriate for, for you to go in there. And I'm not going in there to shop for myself. Um, I, I'm going there to shop for for people who send me orders. And, you know, it, it's funny when you, you, you're both wearing gloves, uh, you're both wearing masks, and still, you know, it's a New York City grocery store. Somebody in a standoffish way says to you when you're just trying to get by with a cart, uh, you don't know. What it means what six feet means do you and it's and and you you just like like you're getting by and going to be six feet away from that person very quickly so i I don't understand why people you know especially especially like the point of the masks, the point of the gloves is so in those settings, you are not potentially in a very close setting giving somebody the, the the COVID virus that you yourself may not know you have. Uh, and I, I think, if, you know, we just treat each other a little bit better. Uh, if we treat each other understanding that, you know, I'm not going to hover over her, <laughs> you know, I'm going to, I'm literally just getting by because we're all near the peaches. We're all near the corn. We're all near the fruit uh, in a very tight Broadway 135th Street shopping uh, uh, supermarket. So, you know, I I, I think that it, it, it's very interesting to see the way different people are are uh, taking this um, because I I I think that you know whether it's whether you're just standing online and somebody you perceive as Five feet, as opposed to six feet, or you're passing somebody in a grocery store. Uh, you've decided to go out that way. You understand that they're not going to be, uh, 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 you know, going against what what has been perceived and 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 uh, uh, communicated as the appropriate way to be in a social setting. Um, you're not going to take advantage of that. You you have to understand that people are not going to take advantage of that, and that it is New York city. And for a hot second, there's not going to be enough room until that person passes by. And so it's interesting talking about, you know, the the different ways that people have been reacting to this because it, 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 it is completely new for us one way or the other. And I think that we all need to have a little bit of nuance, a little bit of percep you know, like a, a better perception about it because, uh, we're, we're not. We're not trying to be disrespectful to anybody. Nobody's trying, or, or so I believe. Nobody is deliberately trying to be disrespectful and and uh, incorrect about the way to go about this right now. And you know, it's all new to us, and, and it's only been months. It's, it's less than really a month and a half, two months almost. Uh, so, I, I, I yeah, because this this really didn't kick off until mid March. Uh and it's about to be May. So let you know, this we, we all have to take it easy. We all have to understand that one way or another we're gonna get through this, but but we all need cooperation and, and it doesn't mean to be uh um starting anything with anybody.
1: Yeah, that that makes sense. And and I think, you know, one of the things I'm noticing is that with some exceptions, people are working together. I see, you know, when I see people out and about, of course, from a socially distant uh, amount of room, uh, people are waving, they're talking, they're, how are you doing? Or, and I, I've seen the good has come out in a lot of people. Uh, not everybody, but the good has come out in a lot of people here, people offering, you know, elderly people, hey, you know, I'm going to grocery store, do you need anything, um, things you don't normally see. And, sure, crisis situations can bring out the ugly in people, too, and I'm sure there's, a, there's an element of that. So uh, let's hope we get through it soon. And, and one of the things we like to say about our podcast is what we're offering is people an escape from that. So it was nice to check in, see how things are going. And now let's get into escape mode and talk about some sports and, and baseball in particular. So let, let's start here, gentlemen. Um, Tuesday looks, uh, as of Tuesday, it looks very much like baseball really wants to play this year. Scott Boras certainly does, and he's very vocal. Uh, The commissioner seems to think that we'll get some baseball going on. And so what has been proposed, and again, this is a proposal, but is that maybe camps can open in late May, uh, a couple weeks of spring training, and maybe a month in total, and then real baseball in June, uh, late June, early July, and... Again, the initial thinking is maybe a season somewhere between 80 and 100 games. And, interestingly, um, games to be played in teams' home parks, not Florida or Arizona, but with no fans at least to start. So let's start there. To minimize travel, which I think is you know better for, um, obviously, the spread of COVID and all that, but certainly minimizing travel if you're going to try to play as many games as you can in a compressed time frame. And, by the way, um, – the proposed season would go through October with the uh, postseason taking place in November in neutral warm weather sites. So the, what would have to happen here, what's, what's on the table, is to minimize travel and get as many games in as possible and, and try to maintain safety, the divisions would be realigned. So let, let me tell you what the proposed division, there would be an east, central, and west, and the east would be the Mets, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Nationals, the Orioles, the Phillies, the Pirates, the Blue Jays, the Rays, and the Marlins. So, obviously, that's geographically very tight. Um, when I see that, I get the, ugh, because I have to play the, be in the same division as the Yankees. Red Sox might take a step back this year, the reigning World Series champion nationals. Phillies should be tough. But then when you look at it, you know, the Mets would have um, – what should be a soft part of their schedule with the Orioles, Pirates, Blue Jays, and Marlins, and I'd put the Rays in the category of good teams, certainly. So if you're going, if you're going to be in a team, a division of, of ten teams, and you, let's just say we'll, we'll split it down the middle, play ninety games. You're going to play each team nine times, or actually, you'd play nine teams, you'd play them um, roughly eleven, uh, roughly nine times each, would give you eighty-one games. Okay, so. My, my question to you is a two-fold question. Brian, I'll start with you. What do you think about this bullish um, idea that, hey, we're going to have some baseball in, in 2020, playing in the home parks with no fans at first, and then if um, the restrictions come up, maybe allow fans in August or so? So what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's foolhardy? And then secondly... Um, what do you think of the proposed alignment? How do you feel about three teams of 10 divisions throwing leagues out the window, at least for this year? And uh, what do you think of all that? So Brian, why don't we start with you?
2: Yeah, I think I should first say, I don't think any plan if it's carefully thought out, um, you know, I can't uh, say any plan at this point is crazy. uh, If it's just a plan that's proposed, um, you know, I think some – I sometimes hear people like, that, you know, the Arizona plan, and then there was the Arizona and uh, Florida plan, and then there was the Arizona, Florida, and Texas plan or whatever. And, you know, sometimes you go, oh, that's crazy. That'll never work. Well, you know, I don't think they did it saying we're definitely going to do it. I mean, I think they say it. They, you know, let's think about this. They kind of throw it out there as a possibility. And – some people might think that's crazy. Well, this is the year for crazy ideas. This is the year to kind of think way outside the box to see if you can get a season in. I don't want to see a season uh, if it's, you know, if, and you know, you can't, no one can uh, say what will happen. Um, but I don't want to see a season that is rushed. That is started without all the precautions taken. I doubt that MLB will, even though we all know that they you know, want to salvage some kind of financial benefit. I don't think they would start a season um, kind of rushed and, and, and not thinking about all the uh, negative things that could come from it with regards to someone contracting the, the disease or whatever. So, and I've also resigned. I've resigned to the fact that I don't think there will be fans uh, for this season. I would be pleasantly surprised if they would uh, allow fans. So, as far as this latest uh, idea, the, the plan itself of starting up in July, I mean, I think if, if uh, everything um, as far as keeping the players and personnel safe, if that is um, in place and uh, have, I think that's a good, it's a good idea and I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's not only it's, it's just generally good for, baseball fans, sports and the country in general to have some kind of sports return and to return to some sense of normalcy. As far as the divisions are concerned, um, I mean, I you know, I I saw I was like you, rich I saw it and I was just like, "Oh, Yankees of course." <laughs> but overall, I mean, I'm not intimidated by the Red Sox as you said. I think I'd take a step back. I think the Mets are on par with the Nationals. They're certainly better than the Orioles. I think they're better than the Phillies. Pirates, Blue Jays, um, maybe not better than the Rays. I think they could surprise, and better than Marlins. So, uh, if you look at like all the other divisions, I think the Mets are are well um, suited in this particular division. And you know, whatever division the Mets were thrown in, I remember in that Florida plan they were thrown into the division with uh, a bunch of good teams. All I remember is that the Yankees had like four, or the, the Yankees were thrown in a division with nobody. And I, I was more upset about that than the division the Mets were in with like the Nationals and the Astros and and what have you, whatever division the Mets are going to be in, there's going to be some kind of tough competition. If the Mets were in the NL East as normal, they would have had the Nationals, Braves, and Phillies to deal with. So there's going to be tough competition. And we should be happy that we're talking about that. We're talking about the potential playing and the potential of the Mets um, being up there with likes of the Yankees and the Phillies because, you know, of maybe go like six or seven years back, they, they, this would never have been thought of as far as competition was concerned. But uh, I'm I'm in favor of it as long as all the precautions are taken and every all safety measures are, are taken as
1: well. Sam, same two questions. Um, your thought on playing in general? Do you think it's foolhardy to, to you know try to do this? Or in fact, let me throw this in, Dr. Fauci today said that maybe we have to think about no sports in 2020. That's, that was a quote just today. But with that, um, Major League Baseball still thinking about this. So your thoughts on the the whole concept of playing in the home parks and 81 games and no fans at least to start, and then your thoughts on the divisional structure and how it might impact the Mets. Well,
0: first of all, um, I – Just thinking about it, like if there's no fans in the stadiums, they're going to be selling the shit out of that advertisement. And the first thing I think of is the S&Y booth and the different ways they'd be thinking about fucking with Keith in the middle of of everything with some of those graphics uh, for advertising. Uh, with like the horse data, what, what was it? The, the, uh, the horse racing <laughs> and, and the, the name, uh, and some of those motor cars going by, uh, for the car advertisements. Like that's the first thing that came to my head was just how much fun just from, from a technological standpoint, if, if we're not having fans, they're really going to be trying to sell as much advertising as in sponsorships as possible. Um, so with with that, like like I go to the way the division the uh, the divisions would be set up. I think about wouldn't that be just it, just listening to those teams? You, it, it could be hypothetically possible that the Yankees and the Mets are battling for the division of the twenty twenty Eastern Championship, uh, and. Uh, you know, it, it's fun to think like that and, 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 and that's going to whether this should happen or not. Uh, I, I think that if you look at the numbers, like New York has been obviously slaughtered compared to everywhere else, even though it's not like everywhere else is like, uh, excuse me, Montana. Um, so you, you definitely have to be precarious about this situation, uh, And I think if you were to eventually welcome any fans back, I think it would have to be along the lines of what's going on now, what we were talking about with the gloves and and masks, if you're in public. Uh, Some people are taking temperatures. I mean, there are places that are starting to open up. Um, And so when I do think about sports coming back, considering that places are starting to open up, it might not be without – It it might not be out of the realm of possibility that you could have games played and some semblance of normal, but I don't think in any way, shape, or form, uh, I I do think it's going to be somewhere in the middle of what Dr. Fauci and what baseball wants. And, and, you know, I, I, I think that I understand what he's saying, but at the same time, I do think it's, it's feasible. And of course I want it back Um, you got, you just have to be smart about it. It's not going to be the same. And I think we have to get used to things not being the same,
1: whatever that means. And what do you think about the division, Sam? Like, how would you feel? Do you think it would be kind of cool? You know, Hey, I, I, I do think it's interesting.
0: I do think it's interesting thinking about it. Like, like in terms of, of that, uh, just for one season. You know, like like seeing how hockey lives, if you will, uh, seeing how some of the other sports lives with this regional breakup, uh, seeing the way baseball could work like that. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But it's why why not try to like it like they said? And you know, and I'll I'll say it from this uh, standpoint. I've been reading a lot about uh, the olden days uh, with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Shameless plug, but I. Uh, I, I you know back in the day sometimes they would take flights uh, but that would be, like, chartered just for a hot second for, like, you know, two months, three months, and then they'd have to go back to train travel. And, and it, it was possible because of how close, uh, you know, it, it didn't go all uh, west of St. Louis back then. Um, and so they also trains everywhere. Uh, and, and, and it it is funny to think about a regional division divisional setup now where all they'd be able to do, really, is take Amtrak, especially from, like, the Cl- cleaning standpoint, um, you know they just you know shine this this stuff down with disinfected every day uh, well I guess however they travel and obviously they they have uh, uh, they they have contracts with airlines now and everything, but it is fun to think about the the way everything would work when you're trying to minimize how long how far anybody has to go these days
1: well. And that would be interesting. One of the things I, I thought about was, well, at least all the Mets games, if they only played within this division, all the games would be in the Eastern time zone. And that's kind of cool, actually, because I hate West Coast games. You know, I'm not even a big fan of uh, when they play the Rockies and it's a two-hour difference. So that's kind of cool. Every game would start, <laughs> you know, on our time schedule, which, you know, we think we're the center of the world anyway. And um, and so that would be kind of cool. But let's see what happens. I mean uh, – I was, like, flying on Tuesday because everybody seems to want it, and then Dr. Fauci threw a a dab of cold water on it today because I just think he's awesome and I really value his opinion. And when he said we we may have to get ready for no sports at all in 2020, I was like, oh, come on, man, you know, don't do that to me. So anyway, we'll see where that goes. Um, Now, on a similar note, um, there has been some strife between the owners and the players over – whether the players should offer the owner some salary relief if there are no fans in attendance. Um, This was collectively bargained in late March, and it was collectively bargained that um, the players would not do that. They would get prorated for the games they played, but not salary relief on top of that. But now a lot of the owners are saying, we're going to need some salary relief here. And the latest thing I'm reading is that although the players don't love it, um, they might be able to work something out like deferred money. And, yes, somebody made the wise like everybody would be Bobby Bonilla. Okay, okay. Um, So there's that. But now let's talk about that. Let's talk about no fans in attendance, at least for the first, let's say, month. Teams today, or, yeah, I think it was today, were given the opportunity to start reimbursing fans or doing something with fans who have paid for tickets. Um, I'm not sure if it was an edict from MLB. I know how the Mets interpreted it. And from what we were talking about before the show, maybe this is the way all teams are handling it. But but the proposal is, and I'll ask for your opinions on this, and Sam, I'll go to you first. If you have tickets for games, the Mets are saying in March and April, where those games, let's face it, they're not going to be played. Um, So if you have tickets for those games, what they will do is they will offer you a credit that you could use either for tickets for this year or next. And in some cases, they'll offer you a credit that you could possibly use at the ballpark for food and concessions, but they will not be refunding your money. And in, what they're also doing is they're saying, okay, if we owe you $1,000 in tickets, let's say, we're going to give you 10% or 20%, I think it's 20% if you're a season ticket holder, on top of that 1000 so you'll get $1,200 to use on tickets next year or this year or concessions. So the salient point here is that money will not be refunded. It'll simply be, it's in my pocket. It's staying in my pocket, you could use it for other services, but you're never getting this money back. So Sam, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that that's um, kind of tone deaf by major league baseball? What do you, what are you thinking about?
0: Uh, Yeah, it's a little tone deaf, you know, especially if we're talking about something where we can't just, you know, knock Jeff Wilpon on the head. Um, I, uh, you know, insert whatever I roll GIF you want right here uh, to to match the audio. Uh, with with you know, we were talking about this before we went on air. That fine, you know, like 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 if you want to treat every single game. Like a rain check, fine. But at the same time, it's like you're basically saying you have no choice but to go. And when when we were, when I quoted this, I said you have no choice but to go to Mets baseball. Um, And right now, it's you have no choice but to go to the baseball. And here's another thing uh, that I was thinking about while you were talking, Rich what about the fact that the schedule is going to look completely different especially if it's a the, this realignment that we're talking about with with these regional uh teams like like how exactly is it going to be dispersed out the way everything everything works that that you know because you have your season ticket holders so do they automatically how how do you is there going to be a pro rating for for the way your home games work like the, the entire thing has to be collectively bargaining with the fan in many ways. Like, like it's just, it just none of it, it's it's all very strange the way it's all gonna work. And I think the best way to do it, and and I guess, it, okay, I'll, and I'll pass it over to you guys after this, and 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 you take it over, Rich, first if you want, but you know. Does it have anything to do with the fact that this has a lot to do with operating expenses and operating costs, and the fact that this money that the, that has already been absorbed is already be working the you know in in the the collective grinds of the of the the wheel, the cog of the machine of every team?
1: I think so. I think in some cases, look, we don't really know. They're not publicly traded. So we when people say they know how much teams make, and I, I don't think they really do, uh, but one thing I, I would I would speculate on is that many teams operate pretty close to the vest and pretty close to break even. And if they have to give back all this money that they've already spent and they still have you know loans on their stadiums and things like that, I, I would think a lot of these teams would clearly be in the red, and like, most of baseball will be in the red this year. And to avoid that, They're offering this. Now, one could argue, Brian, and I'll go to you, I'll I'll tee you up here, that it's like, like Sam said, it's like the rain check policy. So if I have tickets for a game on April 30th and I want to bring my my family down there, great. Um, Well, you know what? It's really, it's a crappy day here. It's it's like 50 degrees and it was raining. Games rained out. Baseball doesn't give a rat's rear if I could make it to another game all year. They say, look, policy is you have a rain check use it for another game. What if I can't make another game all year based on my schedule? They don't care. You're, you're out, buddy. So here, they're basically going with the same philosophy. But, Brian, when we were talking about this before the show, you brought up a really good point how these are not normal times. Maybe you can expand on that a bit here.
2: Yeah, I think to have this kind of similar rain check policy is, is really it, – it's foolish in, in, in these times. I mean – from a year from now, I mean, I think that for some teams it's different. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what uh, each team's policy is. I don't know if some teams are actually offering just a full refund and, and, and you go from there or they're just doing like the Mets with this rain check policy. But they, there could be fans who have purchase tickets um, who a year from now may not be comfortable going to a game. Because we certainly know it's, this is not going to be – the 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 return to normal isn't going to be the case for a while uh, until maybe there's a vaccine. But, you know, a, fa- a, a, a certain fan or many fans may have these certain trepidations about going to a ballpark, and they may not want to go to a baseball game for a while. So why are you painting them into this corner and saying, well, you've got to, you know, you know, use this money for another game, or I guess then you, maybe you sell it or, or what have you. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's foolish and it's, uh it's just, it's not, I don't know. They're just not thinking to me properly um, and, understand, and, and, I have and understanding. Sorry, of sorry to you off,
0: Brian, Sorry to cut you off, Brian, but I think you make a really good point about that, about the trepidation some people are going to have going forward in general, that this is changing the psyche of the human brain and, and the United States, uh, the American's brain. And uh, um, I, I think that you're going to see a flood of tickets go out on the uh, the open market, uh, the third market, and they might not get sold. Going back to you, Brian.
2: And no, and and Rich, you made a great point before the show is also fans uh, may not be able to afford to pay for uh, tickets like they did in the past, you know, considering how many people have lost their jobs. So um, I, you know it's I think the teams need to be a little more understanding and maybe willing. I, and hey, I get, and as we talked about, I get that they may be losing money and they need to find new ways to generate revenue. But they, it needs to be a two-way street. I think with the fans, I think they need to be a little more, give a little more rope to the fans, considering um, how some of these people may have financial strains and just the general fears of going out into crowds for uh, for the foreseeable future.
1: Yeah, and especially with the latest number that came out today, that over 30 million Americans have filed for unemployment, which is basically uh, one out of every 10. That's one out of 10 Americans. That's, uh, obviously, the number is much higher if it's people who are of working age. So, um, and, and, you know, I'll contrast this to the NFL. The NFL is not taking season ticket holder money right now because they don't know what they're going to do. They don't know if they're going to be able to have fans or not. So you almost have to tip your cap there and say, you know, that's a little more in touch with reality of a move. You know, they, they're basically saying, "Look, we don't know if we're going to be able to off, to give you what you're paying for." Then have to. So why are we going to take your money now? Then either give it back or do something crazy. We're not going to take your money yet, so we know we can off, that we can offer you something. I just think baseball comes out looking petty here and insensitive and in tone deaf. Um, and I'm someone who's impacted. You know, I, I'm a partial season ticket holder. I had a boatload of tickets for opening day. So now I've got these big fat credits coming, okay. And maybe if I want to use those for next year, because so I don't think I'm going to go to a game this year. So maybe, but I don't know. It just it doesn't feel right. So all right, so we'll move on. We'll move on from that one on another um, off the field matter, which is Mets ownership. And um, about a week and a half ago, the story started circulating that A Rod and J Lo are looking to be part of a buying group, and they might even jump in with Steve Cohen to be part owners of the Mets. And so a lot of people had a lot of reactions to that. A lot of people, like myself, think it's great, because if you can have someone who, look, like A-Rod or steroids, whatever it is, the man knows the game. He's in love with the game of baseball. I think he knows the game cold. To have somebody like that, like Jeter does with, with Miami, sitting in the owner's box, you know, helping guide some of these things, I cannot see a downside there, especially when you think about he would probably love to stick it to the Yankees. He would love to stick it to Jeter. He would be, I think he'd be ruthless in terms of his, of his desire to pursue a winner. I think it's great. Other people are saying, I don't want any part of that guy in my ownership team because of steroids and all this kind of stuff. So, Brian, I'll go to you first. Where do you come down on that? You know, A-Rod, J-Lo, let's assume they jump in with Steve Cohen. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's not
2: Fred Wilpon and it's not Jeff Wilpon. So it's a great thing. Uh,
1: And I think it's even
2: better if it's those, the three together, because I think collect, I think A-Rod, I don't know. I I don't think j is a Mets fan. I don't, I don't believe so. Um, But I know A-Rod and Cohen are lifelong Mets fans. Uh, Both would have incredibly vested interest in pursuing Talented free agents, winning as you mentioned, Rich. A Rod, you know, and this is kind of a, 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 a tragedy. Maybe is a is a is a wrong term here. The tragedy of Alex Rodriguez and his steroid use is that he was so intelligent that he didn't seem to need it. But uh, that's beside the point. And you are right. His his uh, that intelligence would go a long way to helping. Um, the kind of the, whatever roster moves or just personnel moves, I should say, going forward. So you know, someone asked me who doesn't know who the Mets owners are. Uh, if Alex Rodriguez and J.Lo would create a sideshow for the Mets, I said I would take the sideshow and not have the Wilpons. Um, so to me, anyone but the Wilpons is a great move uh, and a very positive step for the franchise. And if it's Steve Cohen also involved, that's even better.
1: I would agree. Sam, how would you like to know that part of your ownership group is a singer slash actress and a, and a very controversial great player in addition to a guy with more money than probably has ever been printed, right? I know that I'm kidding when I say it. Uh, so how would you feel if A-Rod and J-Lo were part of the ownership group, good or bad?
0: Well, the wolfons uh, have been an ignorant sideshow. They have been a sideshow of ignorance, and and uh, certainly Fred wolfon knew his baseball, be, you know, just from having grown up in Brooklyn. Uh, but I think that at some point he was stuck in that world. Uh, um, and even as somebody who is as, as enthusiastic of that era as I am, uh, I I will admit that even you know even I wish there was a little bit more Giants involved. It's so clearly focused on the Dodgers from the Wilpon standpoint, but I digress. Uh, Going to that ownership, I I think that, you know, the the, the Wilpons have been tone deaf, specifically Jeff Wilpon has been tone deaf, but I think that A-Rod has gotten his tone deafness out of his system. And, you know, know, whispers of Jolo and her tone deafness aside – uh, I think that they both understand publicity, they both understand image, uh, and they've both done a really good job kind of encapsulating that in, you know, especially when you see A-Rod has understood that he made a mistake and has seemingly atoned in many ways. And and going to the Jeter comparison, I think that A-Rod, you know, false aside, has such a bubblier public personality than Jeter ever has had uh, at any point. Um, and, you know, even like the, the closest he had to that was the Mariah Carey days. And he had to get out of that real quickly because most people do. Because uh, as he was quoted in page six, you're crazy. But uh, I, I think that, you know, A-Rod, like everybody has said, he knows baseball and he has, he he has been – unwarranted in his enthusiasm for the New York Mets over his entire life. And that is something that, you know, we were talking about with Steve Cohen. Uh, A-Rod, it seems, has just been waiting for an opportunity like this. And this would make perfect sense for him to be the face of his favorite baseball team. And maybe he could help, you know, if he doesn't help get himself into the Hall of Fame, maybe he could help get his favorite player, Keith Hernandez, into the Hall of Fame, as he rightfully deserves. So this this could be very, very interesting. And and I think that the combination of the two, Steve Cohen with all the money and A-Rod just being the, the baseball brains uh, as a part of it. Um, I, I, you know, and, and J Lo just being, you know, the 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 queen bee, if you will. Uh, you know, and and yes, she is a Yankees fan. You know, J Lo from the block, Jenny from the block, Jenny from the Bronx. I'm fairly certain she's grown up a Yankees fan, but I'm I'm sure that if she were she were owning the Mets, she would probably be rooting for the Mets in the Subway Series.
1: I'd have to think so. And so we'll see where that goes. And I think we're at the point where um where anybody with the Will Ponds, and I think this would be great. I mean to me it would be yes, anybody with the Will Ponds. But Steve Cohen, J- a Rod for baseball knowledge, J Lo for star power, and, and I'm hearing in my ear that, that J Lo actually did grow up in Mets, San Although she grew up in the Bronx. Um, so that would be Oh wow just interesting. Very interesting. Wow.
0: Hmm. That would, and, and let me just amazing. let me just say, you know, there there is a, a segment. I, I forget exactly where JLo's from, but you know, the Bronx is very close to you know sections of the Bronx are very close to City Field, so there certainly is a, a segment of the Bronx that that is, uh, uh you know, a rock's throw from from uh, the you know, the from the Mets. So I could see how there could be a big contingent in the Bronx that that root for the Mets
1: absolutely and, and uh, they have nothing else to do for there's not like there's another team or anything so um uh, anyway so so moving on gentlemen um, let this is the 52nd edition of the Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike and by the way this is Met Fan Rich and you're listening to that 52nd redo edition of the Metsian podcast of Sam Rich and Mike and I have Sam with me tonight Mike's unavailable and we are thrilled to have Brian Wright with us from Mets Marized online so we do like to talk about the number of the episode corresponding to Mets uniform numbers. And so with number 52, as I look at the list, um, it's, it's fairly short. Uh, Tony Clark, who is popular for other reasons now with his role as head of the Players Union. Ramon Ramirez, Carlos Torres, and the obvious number 52, Ioannis Um So that's the list that I have. I'm looking at baseball reference. So, gentlemen, I'm going to ask you, Brian, I'll start with you. If you have any particular thoughts on any of these players, I mean, when I look at this list, I'm, going to, I'll, I'm not going to go for the obvious. I'll talk about Carlos Torres for just a second. Um, I thought he was a very serviceable middle reliever. Um, I believe he was the Met. I think he came up in 2013. He was one of those guys who had to be on the roster by June 1st, or he would have been a free agent. The Mets called him up. And, you know, for for a couple of years he wasn't outstanding, but he was certainly reliable, got the job done. Um, I do want to mention Tony Clark. This is a story I told um, when we did our, our ill-fated show on Sunday night. Tony Clark had, had a season with the Mets in 2003. I remember in 2008 the Mets played a four-game series against Padres out in San Diego. Mets lost the first three games by the score of 2-1. to one. Gary Cohen called it the Jan and Dean Series because of the song Go to Surf City because it's two to one. I thought that was hysterical actually. And then um, and then in the Sunday game, the Mets had the lead. Look like okay, look they're not going to get swept. Thank goodness. And Tony Clark comes up and it's a grand slam. I believe was the bottom of the eighth. So um, that those are my musings on the fifty-two number. Um, if you guys, Brian, I'll start with you. Want to comment? Anybody to have worn fifty-two? I know sometimes you look at different lists. You might see some coaches. I don't see that here. So Brian, the floor is yours on number fifty-two.
2: Yeah, there are. I'm looking at ultimatemets.com, and I, that includes coaches, which uh, includes Harvey Haddix, uh, Randy Neiman, Howard Johnson, Razor Shines, uh, and there are a few others as well. But yeah, the 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 first an obvious person that comes to mind is you want to assess, but it's who took off like a rocket ship when he came to the Mets uh, and at the trade deadline, 2015 uh, as the key figure and leading them to the, the, to the pennant. Um, And, you know, when he's at, when he's healthy and that's, you know, a big, a big, if, if he's healthy, um, he is uh, certainly an impact player. Unfortunately, he just has not been healthy uh, really uh, each of the last three seasons. So, uh, it was. It's too bad because I thought maybe this year he'd be able to contribute a little bit, um, even if he had just you know played in 100 games. If there was a 162 game schedule, got about 300 bats, I think. Uh, if that was, if he was able to to contribute that, it would have been a major uh, boost for the Mets offense. But well, who knows? He still could. He still could uh, be healthy. Still could contribute in some respect. So uh, he's the first person I think of. Um, I mean Tony Clark too. When I saw this list, I was surprised because I always thought Tony Clark wore. Double zero at the Mets, and briefly I thought he stole like Mr. Mets' uniform or, uh, or, or something, or Mr. Mets stole his, you know, I don't know. I always <laughs> so thought it was like Mr. Mets playing, playing for the Mets. Uh, and I remember, and obviously we all know Tony Clark is, as, as you said, uh, heading the Players Union, but I remember as a Detroit Tiger, uh, I think in the late 90s. So, um, but I do know he played for the Mets, I think it was just for one season, but, um, uh, that, those are my my thoughts on number fifty two. You mentioned Carlos Torres as a as a serviceable middle reliever, but uh, not much to choose from. But clearly, Cespedes is the best of the bunch.
1: Sam, number fifty
0: two. Well, I just want to say I think that Tony Clark was double zero before somebody was like, uh, "It's Mister Mets number," <laughs> and because looking at the time here, and I'll have to, I'll just have to scroll back to double zero at some point, but 2003, the 928 2003 according to ultimatemets.com, metscom um, And, you know, what's so interesting about this number, Yohan assessed this number 52, certainly uh, the most memorable player of the bunch. Um, I think that he would be the number one reason other than Jacob deGrom and, you know, the, the Mets playing winning baseball that I would want this season back was just like a swan song of yawn of Cespedus, Uh which, you know, now hopefully he hasn't gotten into any shenanigans on that, 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 uh, that ranch. I almost called it a farm, but it's not a farm. It's a ranch. Um, looking at the list, there are two, the only two world champions are coaches on the, uh, the, the players to wear 52. There is a, a nineteen sixty-two tour who wore the number until uh, 1963, and that's Dolly Hemis, and I haven't actually yet looked up. uh, He was a coach as well. So we have a few coaches on here, and I'll cover Joe Pignatano. What's interesting about Joe Pignatano was that he made his debut in the major leagues after spending seven full seasons interrupted by two in the military in their farm system. He made his debut on April 28, 1957, for the Brooklyn Dodgers. His last MLB appearance was September 30th, 1962 but he wore number 52 from 1968 until 1981 as a coach so really joe pigmentano was the is the longest tenured player i'm sorry the longest tenured person to wear number 52 with the mets and he shouldn't he needs his proper due here because he won a world championship with them uh, as the bullpen coach, he uh, is considered um, to, to have been a big part of, of their, you know, their coaching uh, tandem and, and their, their uh, upstart personality. Uh, and, you know, the only other – I'm sorry, the only other uh, uh, world champion on here is Greg Pavlik, who was a coach. And, and I'll, I'll ask you about this, Rich, you know, if you remember anything about Greg Pavlik. What kind of coach was he? And he he won a world championship with the uh, the Mets in '86.
1: Yeah, you know I remember the name Sam. Um, I don't remember much about him. Um, and it's funny because a friend of mine always says that, you know, when you have a 162 game season, which obviously we won't this year, um, and you have all these pregame shows on radio on TV, why don't they ever have the coaches on? Let, you know, let the um, let the coaches have a uh, have a say. You know, get, hear, hear what they're all about. So no, I, I don't remember much about Greg, Greg Pavlik other than the name, uh, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. So you know that it's it's interesting when you look at it. I, I have to say that from a player perspective, Johannes Vespidis takes this number, but I I think there's a proper argument to be made for Joe Pignatano, who made it through you know, a a couple dreadful eras and including, you know, several coaches, several, several manager changes, Um, you know, basically 1981 made it through the Joe Torre era. And I guess was a casualty of that and probably of old age in general, but, you know, uh, Rich, I'll pass it on to you. You know, you know, obviously you were a kid at the time, but I'm sure you have some memories. I'm sure Joe Pignatano was on some of those post game shows that you speak of at some point. They must have used him a little bit.
1: I remember one thing in specific about Joe Pignatano, and if Mike were on, I'm sure he would corroborate this. Um, Joe Pignatano, Brooklyn Dodger, right, came over with Hodges, and they were buddies with the Dodgers. And But the thing about Pignatano is that he grew the garden in the bullpen, and they would show it every season, multiple times a season. The man had tomato plants, and he had, you know, other other – Fruit-bearing or vegetable-bearing plants in the dugout, and I'm mean, sorry, in the bullpen, and they would show it, and they would say, "Oh, there's Piggy's garden," you know, and and they would actually show him uh, maybe before the game, you know, kind of patting the sand a little bit, you know, and all that. So I remember Pignatano always grew the garden in the bullpen, and in fact, in Skip Lockwood's book, um, Skip, we had him on about a little over a year ago. And he talked about that when it came to the Mets that, you know, that when you went to the bullpen to warm up, you didn't go near those. Those were piggies plants. You didn't go near those. And it, God forbid you trampled one of them, right? He'd have your head. So uh, that's what I remember about Pignatano.
0: So, uh, Brian, uh, I'll, I'll pass it over to you who just combed through Mets history, so I'm sure you know it. But I think when you look at this, especially with the fact that Cespedes' Cespedes's contract has been so brutal, uh Pigmentano probably takes this number i i think is the the silent winner of this yeah i think if you're talking about overall p-
2: people to wear a mets uniform he's the, probably the, he's the most notable uh that's the one the one thing that uh, rich mentioned the, the tomato farm that's what i remember uh, about him as well i do think uh after 1981 he actually went with tory to to uh be a coach with the Braves when Torrey managed the Braves. So he still still stayed in coaching. I don't know how long he stayed there uh, or stayed in coaching. Um, but I do know he continued on um, uh, as, a, as a coach. I'm not sure if he's a bullpen coach or not, but he probably had something to
0: do with the catchers. He's still, he's still going strong, by the way. Joe Pignatano is yeah. still going strong.
1: I I can't believe that because I remember when I was a kid watching games in the 70s he looked old then. That's forty years ago. I mean, uh, seriously. I mean, he. I mean, he looked like a man. Nineteen seventy-three, man. He looked old, you know. And now he's still kicking. Well, no, yeah, I love was, him. Yeah, nineteen
0: twenty-nine. He was born, so you know,
1: he's wants uh, Yeah.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. God bless. Keep um, going, man. All right. <laughs> yeah, keep going, Joe. Um, part of my childhood, right there. All right, so. Here we are in the 52nd um, episode of the Metsim Podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. And as I mentioned, we're thrilled to have Brian Wright from Metsmerized Online. And we're going to do something that I don't think we've done before, which is for our remaining 35 minutes, I'm going to turn the show over to Brian. And I think Brian is doing something, I'll let him give the details, something so cool with Metsamorize Online where he's thinking about the most significant. Plays in um, in Mets history broken down into error. So, Brian, I'll stop there and let you take it about this project you're doing. How did you come up with the idea? Where are you with it? And then I think you're going to give Sam and I a little play time to come up with what we think are some great moments in Mets history.
2: Yeah, no, thank you guys uh, for letting me do this. Um, because it, it, I shouldn't take uh, even part of the credit because it was just the people at Metsamrise were kind of tossing around uh, possible bracket ideas. I had an idea for like a oh, favorite Met or favorite Met team, uh, but I think this is the the best idea, uh, which is uh, the, the uh, basically best moments. Uh, we kind of thought about just moments in general, but then you you find a slippery slope and think about worst moments as well. So we decided to uh, talk about the best moments uh, in the you know almost 60 year history of the Mets. Uh, we broke it down. Uh, it's going to be 60 a 64 moment bracket if I didn't mention that before and we broke it down by time period uh, which I think was the best way to do it and could also allow for the final four to be moments of resp- of different eras so we started out uh, with 1962 to 1979 uh, then the second region was 1980 through 1995 the next one being 1996 through 2010 and then uh, 2011 of course until the present so uh, what I wanted to do was just uh, kind of discuss uh, the different regions. Um, we we are intending, I, I think, to have it come out and have the fans, you know, people on social media vote on it uh, probably early next week, uh, you know, by Monday. So, um, you know, a lot of people at Wise we've been discussing this, and we came up with kind of a rough draft of a, of a 16-moment uh, region in each region, uh, but I certainly think it's a, a, a great uh, time or a good opportunity uh, to discuss maybe some moments uh, that maybe get overlooked and maybe should get more play. I'm not going to reveal uh, the, the list because it's not official yet. So um, we'll start with the first region, 1962 through 1979, and, um, you know, just get the obvious out of the way. Of course, the, the, the Cleon Jones catch to end the 1969 World Series. Um 1973 and all that encompassed um certainly some some memorable uh, uh unforgettable moments from those two pennant winning seasons uh but i will start with uh with sam i'm you know just in your some in your uh just some general uh, moments that you think maybe fans may not think of right away when they think of that time period
0: now i 'm not sure if I mentioned uh, this, this one at all on the last one when we couldn 't hear each other, but I, I want to bring up I, and I, I had wanted to bring up duke snyder 's walk off home run and i 'm going to have to look up who it was again but it was nineteen it was nineteen sixty three it was early on in their history, and they weren 't winning much um I, you know, and I just think that was that was still a really amazing moment against the St. Louis Cardinals, and I, I think that was just a moment when, you know, Met fans who were already there, you know, in 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 such bunches that you couldn't even understand why they were cheering so hard for such a losing team, but it didn't matter. They were happy baseball was back for them, not those. People above, you know, it sounds, sounds strange to say, but that's that was the idea. That, that that was it. They couldn't root for the Yankees. The Yankees were for you for people who root rooted for, for U.S. Steel, like Larry King would say. So having this this team back, and even though I know it was it was uh, um, 1963, it was the last season at the Polo Grounds. Uh, it, it's this little honorable mention moment. I think it's an honorable mention moment. It certainly. Really shouldn't be in terms of voting. it's not going to win out, but I think it's something that fans that that especially like you're asking me might not know much about. I think that that's a great moment and and it does exist as a video that apparently came out on October twentieth two thousand and fifteen, which is a funny time seven days before uh, they faced the the Kansas City Royals in game one um, but you know uh in terms of some other some other uh little moments you know you got to say the shoe polish moment has to be up there uh with that era um you know just tom Seaver in general uh, um, winning so many cy youngs uh uh he had some, some some games where he broke some strikeout records uh i i you know and and that, that at that point I'll, I'll pass it over to rich uh, uh for, for a, a little bit more insight into that era. Um, you know, I, I, I'd like to jokingly say that, Bo, you know, Bobby Valentine in 1978 winning the bubblegum contest, uh, you, got, you got to put that up there during that era, uh, but, but all jokes aside, it, it, it's still, even in the worst of times, it's still an interesting era to to go back to look at, especially when you're able to look at it from those yearbooks perspective and and see some of these some of these Mets teams that aren't talked about as much.
1: So, Brian, you want me to take it from here?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The only thing I want to mention, I I seen the video of that Snyder home run. I think it went about two hundred and seventy feet.
1: <laughs> he was an old man by then, right? The polo grounds, um, the polo grounds, man. Yeah, So I, down the right field line. Exactly. So, well, what I would say to this era is um, obviously, you know, that the Jones catch to win the World Series, but if you think about the two AG catches in um, in game three, both of those were game-saving catches, Right. And so the first one in the left center field gap, the uh, second one was a Willie Mays-style catch in the right center field gap. Um, It it was just amazing because, you know, you think about it, the series was one-to-one at the time, and the Mets, the Orioles were the big, they were the Goliath, right? And if they get the lead in those situations, who knows, they probably would have stomped the Mets at that point. Maybe not. Who knows? But but the, but those catches really enabled them to win that World Series. So I'd go with that one. And the one we talked about on Sunday night, a couple more. Um, the ball on the wall play in 1973 was amazing. The Mets were dead and buried. They were in last place in August, I think on August 31st, actually. And they started this incredible run in September. Yes, the rest of the division pooped the bed, That which certainly helped. But the Mets were on this miraculous run. They're playing the Pirates at Shea. And um, I believe it was Richie Zisk who was the base runner. I forget who hit the ball. But anyway, long drive to left field, lands directly on top of the fence. Doesn't go over, lands on top of the fence, goes straight up in the air. Cleon Jones, you know, picks a dot of the air. Sends a relay to Wayne Garrett, who is playing short, not third. He's playing short. He must have come in for Harrelson at some point who then threw a strike to Ron Hodges to nail Richie Zisk at the plate and keep the Pirates from taking the lead in extra innings. And then that same Ron Hodges got the game-winning hit in the bottom of the inning. Mets win the game, I believe, that night they tied the Pirates. Uh, It was like mid-September. They tied the Pirates for first place, and, and they never looked back. So what a momentum game that was, and what a weird thing to happen. Um, obviously I was, I was in bed at the time, but I remember when, you know, seeing highlights of it, you just had the feeling God wanted the Mets to win because that, that stuff doesn't happen. That that's weird. You know, God wanted the Mets to win that year. So, um, so I'm going to go with that one as one. And then one we talked about on Sunday night as well, 1979, really the darkest uh, to me, one of the darkest years for the Mets in what was a dark era after the Seaver trade and the Kingman trade. Um, so the Mets have nothing. They have Brooklyn born Lee Mazzilli, you know, great player and all that, or good player anyway. Um, he's the Mets' all-star. And in the all-star game in Seattle, he hits a home run to the opposite field to tie the game for the National League. Then he walks with the bases loaded to drive in the winning run. So in a, in a, in a season of despair where the Mets had nothing, at least Met fans had the opportunity to smile about their guy, their Brooklyn born guy being the hero of the all-star game. So I'm going to go with that one as, as kind of an off the wall one.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, that, uh, all-star game walk was against, uh, Ron Guidry. So he had a subway series kind of encapsulated in one, one pitching matchup, one hitter batter matchup. Um, I, the ball on the wall play, and I just looked this up, uh, it brought them up to within a half game of the Pirates. I actually agreed with it. I thought it was it also helped them tie. But that play uh, was just a one in a million play because if it's like a few inches further, it's over the fence, of course. And if it's a few inches shorter, it probably takes a weirder bounce off uh, the fence, and Cleon Jones can't make a clean grab of it and then throw it to Garrett and threw it to Hodges. So, that is, yeah, a one-in-a-million play. And the hitter was Dave Augustine, I believe. I'm not totally sure about that, but I think that was that it. Was, but Richie Zisk, Richie Zisk definitely was the runner. Um, so, yeah, those are – the ball on the wall definitely is part of uh, the list, I will say that, and as well as AG's catches are, are to me, very high, uh, not only because of the catches, but the fact that he hit the home run in the bottom of the first, and he effectively – won the game, it was a five nothing final and he, he saved five runs and contributed one. So, um, and that, you know, broke a, a one, one tie and allowed the Mets to win, of course, uh, the final two games. That was a big, uh, Turner turning point of the series. So to me, that's, uh, worthy of, 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 of high regard, um, on the bracket, um, but uh, moving on to our second region, which is again, 1980 through 1995. So of course you got everything that happened in 86 and uh, the few years that led up to it. Um, you also have the, the, the playoff run of 88 um, and then, <laughs> every, you know, the downfall after that, but uh, maybe there is a good moment to talk about in there. I think maybe David Cohn's 19 strikeouts uh, might be the lone moment of, of, of that period. Um also, maybe Anthony Young, if you want to uh, talk about that, the ending his losing streak. But uh, I will start again with Sam. Um, what do you think, uh, aside from the, the obvious moments, you know, Buckner plays, final out of the, you know, LCS and the World Series? What um, do you kind of pinpoint as some of the memorable, maybe forgotten moments of from '80 to '95?
0: Anthony Young might be the ultimate Met in that when you look at the 1962 team, they were always just short in many, many of those losses where they could have tied the game or gone ahead, like Duke Snyder did that one time. Um, Anthony Young, when you look at the numbers, he wasn't that bad of a pitcher. He is the ultimate hard-luck pitcher, uh, which is many uh, of the seasons that the, the Mets have where it's some hard luck and then eventually it, it snowballs. Um, but but in that era, the first thing that, that came to my mind was that 16-inning game against the Astros. You know, like I, I still think the Buckner game and, and the World Series games take the cake, but you got to look at that game – as being what really made them champions because they could have maybe easily uh, luckily beaten Mike, Mike Scott the next night, who was scuffing the ball left and right uh, and up and down. But, you know, at the same time, they all knew that they hadn't been able to beat him and he was living. And they, they staved off after almost, you know, Losing in nine, uh, they stave that off only to stave off, you know, to get the lead only to stave off a tie, and then get the lead again only to stave off another rally. Uh, that game has to be at least one, you know, if not one, then it's two. Uh, and 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 you got to say, I think the Buckner game definitely always takes the cake because and Mookie Wilson is, is the cream of that crop. Um, nothing happens without Mookie Wilson. So, but nothing happens without Gary Carter, obviously. So, it, you know, that is why, That's definitely the number one moment during that era, for sure. But you got to say that Astros game, and uh, Game Six, sixteen innings, has to be considered within, if not one, then one A, um, because of its importance. And, and there's all, all all different little moments that that I'll, I'll pass over to Rich, but. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it, Greg could go to town right now in 1994 and 1995 for us. But go ahead, Rich.
1: So, I mean, it, those are obvious moments. And I don't mean that in a negative way. There are incredible moments is, is a better word. Uh, what, what Sam went through um, for the reasons he and I, I'm not even going to go there, but I'll just try to go a couple of different ones because Sam, you certainly did a great job with those. So I'm going to, A couple other ones in that era. Um, How about one that had nothing to do with anything on the field? How about June fifteenth, nineteen 1983, when the Mets acquired Keith Hernandez? None of the rest of this happens, and trust me, I lived through it, guys. None of the rest of it happens if they didn't get Keith Hernandez. In 1983, the Mets had been an also-ran team for years at that point. Keith Hernandez gave them credibility and Keith Hernandez begat Gary Carter if I can get biblical with you. You know, because now the Mets knew that they had something cooking. They had the young guys coming up, but Keith was the he was the cornerstone where they really the fans really started to believe in in the team and the team started to believe in the team and that's where it all started to come together. So I'm going to say June 15th, 1983, off the field acquisition by Frank Cashin to get Keith Hernandez. Um, another one I'm going to point out and it's funny, I saw this on, on, a, on a video today, and the Mets posted it on Facebook for some reason. Len Dykstra's walk-off home run in Game 3 of the NLCS against the Astros. Mets are down the bottom of the ninth, down by a run, facing Dave Smith, whom they owned the entire season. Len Dykstra gets, gets a, into one, hits it over the, right, over the right field wall into the bullpen. What I remember about that, if I may share a personal anecdote, I'm at the game and i lost my car keys never found them because everybody was jumping on everybody it was like a big it was like a big mosh pit we were going crazy in the stands i didn't drive to the game fortunately but my house key my car keys everything gone never found them again because they're just rolling around on the filthy shea stadium cement and celebrating that moment so there's that one and then um you know, uh, the 88 season, I really can't call out anything there because it was such a disappointment. Um, so I'll go with those. I'll leave it at those two as as moments we haven't discussed yet. The acquisition of Keith Hernandez and Lenny's walk-off home run in Game 3 of the uh, NLCS. Because, you know, Game 3 is huge. You, you don't want to go down two games to one, especially in your home ballpark. So I'll That's go with
0: true.
2: That's true. Yeah, I think uh, especially because they were down one when that happened, I I think that more so than uh, the game five win with uh, Gary Carter getting the hit up the middle, um, the Dykstra home run was with a runner on and down by a run, so that was a, a another you know we talk about game three at A G. This is another big turning point in that series, uh, and 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 I'm glad you mentioned Keith, uh, Keith Hernandez the trade. I um, you will not be disappointed. It's it definitely among the sixteen, and actually in my opinion, it's it's very high because. Uh, it preceded all the moments uh, that were to, to, to follow. So uh, the best trade in Mets history to, for me deserves to be, to get uh, really, uh, to get mentioned very highly. Um, and it's going to be interesting because uh, as far as our seeding is concerned, I mean, we're going to have the Bill Buckner moment first. And in fact, maybe the Jesse Roscoe final out of the world series gets second. Um, but the the NLCS, the game six, just in general, Will be probably third, if not second, but it'll be interesting. Interesting because there are some people, even my my dad, feels that Game Six of the NLCS was better than Game Six of the World Series. Now, you know, Game Six of the World Series is literally your final breath.
0: Uh, Where
1: can I can I just say though?
2: More breathing room.
0: Oh, go ahead. Can I just say though that that inning, be the most remarkable baseball I've ever rewatched. You know, and, and I wasn't, I was only one years old. I didn't watch it at the time. Uh, but I, you know, just, I, I, I still like, it, it's, it's like, I, you know, I always attribute it to a, a pop culture reference of the era, uh, The the 10th inning of Game 6 of the World Series in 1986 is just like Back to the Future. No matter how many times you've seen it, you're always on the edge of your seat wondering whether Murray McFly is going to get to the Lightning in time.
1: Uh, I'm going to add in one thing, Brian. I'm going to say that I agree that Game 6 of the NLCS was a better game than Game 6 of the World Series. Now, obviously, the significance might have been a little bit different. Um, you know, the Mets still would have had game seven in the NLCS, but that's a great ball game. You know, Nipper was pitching, was absolutely, um, uh, I said Nipper, but uh, Nipper was absolutely wearing the Mets out. For them to rally three runs on top of the ninth, the seesaw nature, it was just an incredible game. And then for the Astros, as Sam noted earlier, to have the winning runs on base with Kevin Bass up in attire, Jesse Orozco, that game was incredible. Whereas Game Six, you know, that inning was incredible.
2: Yeah, that's that's. I definitely agree with all, all your points. It's gonna. Yeah, I will. It will be interesting to see if when fans vote on that, um, how they how they how they go about uh, uh, putting their vote in, because um, there could be some people who feel that the, the game supersedes the, the the moment, or they may feel that the. the the NLCS game was better than the, the World Series game, but we'll see. So that's part of the fun of this, obviously. So we will move on to uh, the next region, 1996 through 2010. Uh, a lot of Mike Piazza and early David Wright moments. Um, you know, the, the first thing I think of uh, when it comes to 1996 to 2010 uh, is that era, the Bobby Valentine era from, you know, 99, 2000, 2001. And I think of the Piazza home run in the first game after September 11th. Uh, and that had ramifications that were greater than baseball. And uh, that is, as we decided, was the top seed. Uh, obviously, you have the Ventura Grand Slam single in the 1999 NLCS Game 5, um, Todd Pratt's home run, the N.D. Chavez catch uh, in the Game Game 7 of the 2006 NLCS. So you have a lot of uh, great Mets. That'll be Rich's. That'll be Rich's vote. Oh, the, the <laughs>
1: no. Chavez catch? Oh, no, we we joke about that. I, <laughs> I, I look away every time I see the ND catch because they lost the game. I don't see how, and it just, it's just a me thing, but I don't see how we could immortalize a moment from Mets history that about an hour and a half later was one of the most crushing defeats they've ever had. I've never understood. To me, that is a horrible memory, not a good one. And I know I'm on an island with that. Well, Rich, I will, I will agree with you in some respect because I think we're at, uh, some of the people that were going over this
2: list um, had the Andy Chavez catch above the Grand Slam single, and I was the one saying, no, you can't do that. Like, I love the Andy Chavez catch, but it's in a loss. I can't put something in a loss up that high. So um, I do agree with you in some respect. Uh, I think it's a, as far if you're just looking at the moment itself, and I know you can't really do that because a lot of these moments um, you have to take in everything that happened before and after with it. But in the moment, it was a great moment. Now the fact that it would happen in a crushing defeat to me downgrades it significantly. Um, but Sam, I'll go to you. Um, just other things you think about other moments that come to mind when we're talking about 1996 through 2010.
0: Yeah, you know, you got to think about that, uh, the Grand Slam single. The Grand Slam single. Because, you know, unfortunately they weren't able to finish it in the way the Red Sox did, but that was the first time anybody had challenged anybody really uh, down 3-0. And for a hot second it looked like the Mets were going to do it. Uh, They didn't end up doing it, but, man, was that an exciting 15-inning game. Uh, I definitely think that that might be regardless of the fact that they made it to the world series, that 99 team and that moment it, it embodies hope, you know, it, it it is what we focus baseball, you know, on baseball about. Um, I, I, I really think. And um, it, it's unfortunate that Kenny Rogers had to have his say, uh, but it is what it is. So, Um, I I, I think about Pedro Martinez playing for the Mets. That just overall is such a monumental moment for me. Um, I I think about the Mo Vaughn home run, especially because, unfortunately, he could be representative of of that failed era, but at the same time, he had a pretty good one. Was it was 2002 and just didn't play at all in 2003, something like that, uh, or vice versa. And, um, but at the same time, that was still, when you go back to the highlight, quite the thing to watch. And for a moment, it looked like Mo Vaughan could, do no wrong as a Met, and he did. He did still hit 42 home runs in the season with the Mets uh, in a bad year. So you gotta you gotta give him some credit for being the the best thing in one of one of uh, the Mets bad seasons. Um, and you know, till 2010, I'm thinking about the two catchers, uh, Rod Barajas and Henry Blanco, uh, uh, Hank White. <laughs> the was, was the nickname I was trying to think about uh hitting walk off home runs back to back uh the 20 inning game uh against the cardinals in 2010 uh uh Angel Began and being the only good thing in 2009 um it, it it's i it's you know 2008 in Santana. um I I I think that that is that is what I have out of that era, and the fact that I became a Mets fan in general, I I, I officially became uh, a Mets fan through and through. So that that'll be what I remember about that era, and just and the the you know Mike Piazza uh, coming in 1998.
1: Rich, over so, you. Uh, any you pick a moment? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so as I was thinking about this, you, know, you hit on a lot of them. Uh, the Piazza acquisition to me was very analogous to the Hernandez acquisition. The Mets were, you know, not as bad in '98 as they were in '83, but the Piazza acquisition really got them going. You know, that was okay. Look, we're in this to win this, and certainly re-signing him as well. So that would be an off-the-field thing. Uh, for on-the-field, you know, I, I think about that that game um, game five against the Braves. And in the playoffs in, in 99. And I think about certainly the walk-off, the Grand Slam single. But remember what happened before that? Mets are down a run. They had the bases loaded, and I believe there was one out. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, I think Sean Dunstan had started that rally. But the walk, mm-hmm. it was a bases-loaded walk to tie the game. Um, I don't remember who walked in that spot, and I should remember it. I'm not not—I'm blanking on it. But whoever it was. Who was. Was, so was that? It was not that. Um, That walk, think about what could happen. You're down a run, right? Uh, Bases are loaded, you have a slow-footed catcher. If he hits into a double play, season over on a double play ball, right? But instead, I remember screaming at the top of my lungs with every pitch, ball four, ball four! And and when he finally walked, that enabled the Ventura thing, so I think that was a great moment. Um, And then I think about Timo Perez, and as much as and I'm not thinking about the World Series version, what I'm thinking about is the absolute joy when he was jumping up and down, waiting for the ball to come down, you know, to end the, the NLCS against the Cardinals. So I think about those couple of things, and I'll throw in one more, um, only because it hits us as Met fans right in the heart in a good way. How about the David Wright walk-off against Mariano Rivera? In the Friday night game of the Subway Series in 06. because that was a seesaw game. Yanks jumped out. I think it was uh, four to nothing top of the first. Mets get it to four three on a grant on a uh, three run home run by Beltron in the bottom. Seesaw game all the way. Billy Wagner strikes out the side in the top of the ninth, and then David Wright walks it off over Johnny Damon's head against Rivera against the hated Yankees. So I'm going to throw that one in there too.
2: Yeah, there they're uh, that game, and there there are two. Great uh, Yankee-Mets games that, of course, turned out to be Mets victories that one. And then the uh, uh, game in July of 99, which Matt Franco got uh, the game-winning hit. That was another, I believe, another back-and-forth game. I know it was a uh, 9-8, to I think, was the final score. So two great Met-Yankee games. I also think of two great... and just because I I helped write this article, we were uh, at Mets Marais, We were debating uh, the greatest offensive, uh, or greatest single game hitting performance in Mets history, and I went with Gardner uh, Alfonso uh, six for six in 1999, and uh, the other writer went with Carlos uh, Delgado's nine RBIs at Yankee Stadium in 2008, I think it was in June maybe. So those two moments, probably the two. Greatest uh, hitting performances, greatest hitting performances in Mets history also have to be um, considered as well. So a lot of uh, it's this one. I think Pat was the toughest, just because there are like three, maybe like four or five great Mets seasons, uh, and a lot of great moments came from that. Um, it, to me, it was this was tougher to rank more so than like the other ones. Um, I don't know why, but uh, it just for and it's also interesting because I this is like you know the first era that I grew up rooting for the Mets in. Um, I will move on to uh, the last region, 2011 to the present. Uh, the 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 when I saw it when I see 2011 to the present, the first thing I thought of was the Santana no hitter, uh, June 1st, 2012. I don't think there is much disagreement that uh, is is not the top seed very high. Uh, we also have just the, all the moments that came from 2015, that pennant winning season. Um, and also David Wright's final game uh, in 2018, coming back from all those injuries he had, he was able to uh, make it out there for one more game. And that was certainly uh, an emotional moment when he left the field for the last time. So I'll pass it off to Sam. uh m- Things that you think of? I mean, we're we're talking about the most recent
0: era of Tech history, uh,
2: but some of the things that you think of uh, when it comes to 2011
0: to now. Well, for one thing, I'm going to throw Jason Bay a bone in 2011. He walked off on the Yankees. That's pretty cool. Uh, give him that. Um, you know, I'm going to – let's save some of the World Series moments. I'll, I'll let Rich uh, dive into that. Um, because you know not just the World Series moments, but the playoff moments of 2015. Because I, I think that entire uh, era is just ripe with the best moments, and you know some of the best moments in Mets history. Um, but I, I'm going to go to that no hitter again, and, and uh, the lead up to the no hitter. Also, you know a week earlier, with uh, the help of Mike Nikias and the grand slam that made it nine nothing. Santana pitched a shutout, a nine-inning shutout. And then none of us really thought going into the Cardinals game, which was mostly from the PR perspective about Carlos Beltran coming back uh, as a Cardinal, um, and Wainwright was – and ironically, Wainwright was on the mound. You know, there there was a lot of weird – like the baseball god kind of things going on with that game. Uh, other than the things I just documented in terms of the symb- symbolism, in ter- you know, what we were talking about with the Andy Chavez game, uh, you know, Carlos Beltran and Adam Wainwright. Um, but you also had the fact that Gary Carter uh, ran onto the field at the end of the game, a game where the Mets had scored eight runs and gotten to eight hits. Uh, with uh, the the cardinal zero runs uh, and zero hits, so it, it was a very it was a very interesting narrative leading into that game and the way the game uh, uh, unfolded and persisted. Uh, and you know, a little quick trivia, guys, I'll throw out to you first, Brian. Who is the starting shortstop in the game that Santana got the first Mets no hitter? Oh.
2: Starting shortstop. My guess, initial guess, is Ruben Tejada.
1: Rich, I'll go with Quintanilla. You are correct, sir.
0: Omar Quintanilla was the starting shortstop in that game, uh, and, and so uh, I will pass it over to you, Rich, for uh, that era.
1: Well, it's hard to to go with anything other than 2015. And again, here's me on an island again. I uh, I'm not a huge fan of the Santana no hitter. I I know it was great. You know they've always flirted with one. Seaver flirted with many, and it was great to have one. But as far as I'm concerned, it's a one hitter. Um, we know Beltran's ball was fair. It's obvious. We've seen the video. And yes, you know it goes another the symbolic bucket. thing. Another
0: symbolic part about it. Beltran's the one who gets that. It's very I love it.
1: It is. There, there's some symbolism in there and all of that, but I, I I just can't wrap my arms around it for that reason, you know, for the reason that um, it truly was a, a one-hitter, but, you know, it's a great moment when it's just refined. So, what I'll say about 2015 was um, NL, um, division series against Dodgers, game three. Mets. Uh, Dodgers take a 3-0 lead in that game. Let's not forget that. Mets chip away, chip away, they get the lead, and then Cespedes hit an absolute moonshot that salted it yeah. away. I think that, that home run made it like 10-3 to 3 or something like that. And yeah. where I was sitting in that game, the ball basically went right by my face. I was by the left field foul pole, and it just flew at the same level as my face. And I was like, and when that ball left the ballpark, because I'm a nervous Nelly Mets fan, it was like, oh, we're going to be okay. All right, we're going to win this game. It's salted away now. We've got a real <laughs> shot here. So I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with the strikeout of Howie Kendrick to end the NLDS um, as another because, you know, let's face it, they're the Mets. They could have blown that game. It was weird how they took the lead on, you know, Murphy with the great base running, uh, going to third on the, uh, on the falling asleep by Zach Grenke and then scoring on the sack Fly. So it, it was weird how they, they got the lead. I, I was worried that entire game. So the final strikeout of Howie Kendrick has to be up there for me. And then I'll go with another one, World Series Game 3. Mets are down, David Wright hits a home run, and there was so much to that. It was the only game they won in that World Series, but also seeing the Mets guy, the captain, who came back in late August from injury, his first ever, and turned out unfortunately his last time he played in a World Series, and for him to hit a home run there and sort of energize the crowd and really boost them to the only win they had, um, I'll go with that one as well. Hey, can
0: I just say that if uh, you're as familiar doesn't pitch in that game, maybe the Mets win the World Series?
1: Probably true.
2: <laughs> I think uh, the first thing that comes to my mind about that, uh,
0: the Division Series
2: Game 5 is, is Jacob DeGrom and how he just kind of overcame uh, the early troubles, and it looked like he was going to kind of go off the rails, but he... You know, as we've learned about Jacob DeGrom in the years to come, he's kind of a guy who just, you know, even when he doesn't have his best stuff, uh, manages to to pull through. So that's what I remember about that game, kind of almost letting it get away, letting the Dodgers take a big lead, but holding them off and allowing uh, Murphy to get that home run. And then um, uh, also before that, Murphy to make that great base running play that allows them to win the game and uh, the bullpen to close it out. Syndergaard among them. So, um that's, that's what I think of it as a of the Division Series Game 5, and I actually rate that, to me, better than even the NLCS, just because I think it was such a good game. It was a deciding game as opposed to uh, sweeping the Cubs uh, in the LCS. The, very quickly before we, we, we stop, there are two moments, um, two like, kind of viral moments that happen. I guess in this age you're going to have viral uh, things that, are, that go viral or, or what have you two moments in particular that the people at uh, us at Metsamorize were talking about um, and whether they should be included or how high should they be. One was the Bartolo Cologne home run. um, And the other was Terry Collins, you know, now audio of after Noah Syndergaard threw a Chase Utley. Um, I feel as far as the Cologne home run, I think it's a, a moment, maybe it's among the top 16, um, I think it's a fun, obviously fun moment. Um, and I think maybe it could be included because it's just the, the uniqueness of it. To me, the Collins rant is something that happens all the time. You just never hear it. Um, so to me, it's, it's overblown. It's, it's a social media hyped thing. Um, so I did not think it should be included because I just think it happens all, all the time and you just don't, you don't get audio of it. And, honestly, I think you should get audio of of manager's rants. It'd be a lot of fun. We all hear Earl Weaver's rants. But um, I'll pass it up very quickly to to Sam. What are your thoughts on Cologne and the Terry Collins moment as far as being included in the top 16 of the last, you know, 10 years?
0: Well, with the Terry Collins moment, it's just like, you know, a great
2: moment. One,
0: you know, it's nice that he's got – his players back. It's nice that he he has the franchises back in that moment. That's really what you can say about the moment. Uh, And like you said, it happens all the time. We just don't hear about it. But it's still nice to be able to catch a moment like that And that's real. And um, especially with all the problems we've documented over these years of podcasting, uh, as you know, Rich, uh, about Terry Collins, it's still – Nice to to have a time where you can applaud the guy. Um, You know, I don't have everything against Terry Collins. I just think he wasn't the the best manager the Mets have ever had, even though he did accomplish a lot as a New York Mets manager. Um, And in terms of the the Cologne moment, yes, great moment. Like Gary Cohen says in his call, this is one of the great moments in baseball history, Uh, and I believe it is the way it, it unfolded uh and it's the way, it it's just weird like you know that that wasn't a, a fixed moment uh that was a, a real genuine moment because
1: James Shields was never the same after it Rich
2: uh your thoughts
1: Well um you know I was never a big Bartolo Colon fan on the field and uh, you know his home run was, was a, a you know a funny moment it was a lighthearted moment um but it's not like our total clone was Tom Seaver who had this long history with the Mets. He had a couple of seasons. It was a freakish thing. We had the home run. Okay. It was something to be enjoyed, but I agree with you, Brian. I don't think it makes the list at all. Um, and then, and then the other one, you know, Terry Collins, the whole thing, um, I, <laughs> I kind of put the same lens on that. It was unique in the sense that we don't hear that very often. And major league baseball did not want us to hear it. They were not happy that that got out. um, so, but I don't think it makes the list. I mean, because I think arguments like that happen all the time. It was a great little sneak peek for those of us who have never been in the dugout, you know, to, to know what that sounds like and, and what that dynamic is like when the manager goes out there. So it was kind of cool, but I don't think it was a, a great moment that would warrant being on the list. Yeah, no, um, as I said, I I
2: agree with you with that. And um, I think maybe the cologne would be – it would be uh, a nice uh, maybe 16 seed because it'll be fun to see what people vote on if, like, they want to actually – how much they support the the Bartolo Colon home run and and just all that it brought. Um, But to me, it's not – when I think of moments and I think of, you know, impactful moments specifically – um, you know, I don't think Bartolo Collins makes the top 16, but if you're talking about just uh, general great moments in, in Mets history that whatever criteria might use, it might make it. So, uh, but the Terry Collins thing definitely does not. Uh, so that's all I got. Um, again, thank you guys for letting uh, me kind of uh, uh, use you guys as a, as a kind of a, a, a sounding board and also getting your opinions on, on this list. And uh, as I said, for the listeners, it should be uh, it should be available, on that's Rise and be able to vote for it early next week. I don't have an exact date, but it will be available soon.
1: Thank you, Brian. All right, so we're down. For, we're a little bit over. I think we're okay. We have about a minute and a half. So, Brian, in the minute and a half we have left, I'd like to thank you for joining us. I have had a blast on this podcast. I love this segment you just did. Thank you for doing it. If you could just remind people where they can find you and what your work is, that would be great. Yeah, now, thank
2: you very much, Rich and Sam, for letting me do this and for being on the show again. I'm at uh, Brian Wright, at BrianWright86 on Twitter if you want to reach out to me. Uh, my latest book, New York Mets All-Time All-Stars, is available at uh, booksellers. And if you want to reach out to me and buy a signed copy and part of it donated to Hospital for Special Surgery, just uh, send me a direct message. And also you can find me uh, at Online.
1: Brian, thank you so much. We have less than a minute, so we'll grab a last word in. Sam, I'll go to you first. What's your last word tonight?
0: Uh, perseverance. That's just what we got to uh, keep on pushing. Uh, maybe we'll get sports, maybe we won't. But 2020 is unlike any year
1: that we've any of us have really ever had. So let's uh, persevere. Awesome. Brian, yourself, last word for tonight. Um.
2: Uh, Optimism. <laughs> I think there's a chance we could have baseball, and uh, that's if it's the fans are without. I think uh, either way, we have to you know take what we can get at this point.
1: Great sentiment. Once again, Brian, thank you, thank you to everyone for being part of the 52nd edition of the Mets of the Metsian podcast. With Sam Rich and Mike. And as we're at about 15 seconds, Sam, why don't you close this the only way you know how? Let's go Mets. Good night, everybody. Let's go Mets. Good night, everybody. Brian, thank you. Have a good night.
0: Thank you.